Okay, so we're continuing on today with our series of Heroes of Faith and looking at someone that we've actually looked at before. Back in May, I was here with part one of uh, a study of the life of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, I called in that first time in May, a prophet of brokenness. And, uh, you know, he often is also called by others the weeping prophet because he did have a lot to cry about. He was called upon by God to pronounce judgment on the people of Israel for their, you know, their disobedience, their idol worship, their, their child sacrifice, and the religious prostitution that had really polluted the land. And so he was called to speak that message of judgment, to speak truth to power. And because of that, he experienced tremendous brokenness. I mean, he had loneliness because he, even his own family rejected his message. And he had to flee from his hometown because there was a plot against his life that his own relatives had hatched. He experienced a tremendous amount of humiliation and shame because in the public square, as he would give this message, people mocked him, they ridiculed him, they beat him, they threw him in stocks overnight, and people laughed at him. And it was a, a real weeping prophet. We have an amazing insight into his inner life, his thought life, and how he struggled with this thing that God had called him to do. And it was so difficult that it was beyond just shame and humiliation. He really faced death. Uh, he was in prison numerous times, and ultimately he was thrown into this pit, this quagmire, which, by the way, archaeologists have discovered in, in Jerusalem. Pottery shards from that era, skeletons, people who died there. Thankfully, one of them was not Jeremiah because very close to death, sinking in mud, cold in this quagmire of filthy ooze, there was a servant of the king, an Ethiopian, who actually pleaded to the king to rescue Jeremiah. And so he was pulled out of that pit just in time. But in the meantime, the very things that Jeremiah had prophesied had come true. King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians from what is now modern-day Iraq, had come and had invaded and had breached the wall in Jerusalem and had taken away most of the city captive, all of the royalty, all of the intelligentsia, the wealthy, even some of the middle class, somewhere between 40 and 70,000 people taken captive. And this was a brutal experience because they were lucky if they had clothes on their back. Most of them were naked. They had put hooks in their jaws to lead them away and they had to go through this experience and see this terrible, terrible thing happen, ultimately being in exile, resettled in the land of their enemies in squalid conditions. And Jeremiah, seeing this, obviously experienced great brokenness. But now in this second piece, what we see is that brokenness leads to a different kind of a message that he brings. And he becomes a prophet of hopefulness, because he recognizes that even in the midst of all of this, we can see the goodness of God. And so I've picked three vignettes from this second half of Jeremiah's story that I think really demonstrate this hopefulness that he was able to have. You know, all of God's heroes of faith can experience the same brokenness that this world so often brings to our lives. They're not immune or exempt 
from those things. But what makes them heroes is not just that they experience those same things, but in the midst of it, find a way to grab onto the hopefulness of this thought. Nevertheless, God is good. And so let's look at these uh, in your handout. The first picture that I see uh, uh, is hope in the midst of exile. And this is actually Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, coming from a, a larger letter that Jeremiah wrote after he got out of the pit. And he's writing to the exiles in Babylon. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they, the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them that you may have many grandchildren Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Now, the first remarkable thing to me in looking at this story is that Jeremiah wrote this letter at all. Because remember, these people are the ones that gave him so much pain and suffering. They were the ones that threw him in prison. They were the ones that beat him and mocked him. And I have to tell you, if it was me, I might have written a very different letter. <laughs> you know what? See, didn't I tell you this was what would happen? And now look at you. You're getting just what you deserve. And isn't that a human response, you know, when you are someone does you wrong, you feel the need to justify the fact that, hey, I didn't deserve what you did to me, but you deserve what you're getting. And maybe that would have been the letter that I wrote, but Jeremiah didn't. He didn't write that letter. He wrote a good letter. He wrote a letter of hope and encouragement, even to the people who had so badly treated him. And in doing so, he demonstrated what God is really like. You know, we do suffer oftentimes for the things that we do that are wrong. And so often God, it's not that he's trying to, you know, bring a, uh, some kind of judgment on us, but he really in the end allows us to reap what we've sown and doesn't force a better choice on us. C.S. Lewis put it this way, in the end there are really only two types of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. But when people suffer the consequences of their own actions, God doesn't say, I told you so. He doesn't say, you're getting what you deserve. Instead, he says, my heart breaks to see. And then he looks to redeem, to bring us back. He's such a good God. You know, I was thinking about this when we were all watching with amazement what happened in Charleston, where the victims of the, that horrible crime were able to speak to the murderers of their loved ones and say, you've taken the most precious thing from me. I'll never be the same, but I forgive you. Wow. Or I want to ask you to consider your ways, repent, and, and believe in Jesus. 
And they said those things, and the world was amazed and said, wow, such good people. I saw on Morning Joe, Mika Brzezinski, with tears in her eyes, say, when I heard that, I fell on my knees. But the point is not so much that they are just good people, but that they are God's people, you see. That's what God looks like. And those dear people in Charleston were given the strength from God to respond as he does. And that's how Jeremiah responded to the people in exile who so badly mistreated him. He wrote this letter, this amazing letter. And you know, that's how you and I can respond too when we're mistreated or maligned. We can respond in that same gracious way because that's how God has dealt with us. Now, the wonderful thing is that this actu- this, the letter that he actually writes is a letter that is absolutely the best advice possible for a people who have experienced what these folks have, the trauma. You know, you just don't get over this kind of upheaval, this kind of experience of tremendous pain, profound loss. And so what naturally tends to happen when we experience that is a kind of listlessness about life a malaise that settles in, a despairing of life itself. That's the very natural reaction to this kind of trauma. But Jeremiah writes to these people, hey guys, guess what? You have to keep on living. You have to keep going on. There's there's a a, a new expectation that you need to see because your life isn't going to be what you thought it was going to be. In fact, this is your new normal. He tells them, Look for what you can live with in your present circumstances. Actually, later on in this very chapter, chapter 29, he tells them how long they're going to be there. Seventy years you're going to be in exile. Think about what that meant. They knew Jeremiah was a prophet. They had seen his words come true. And now he tells them, you won't be able to go home. For 70 years you're going to be in exile. And for adults, they're thinking, oh my. I'm never going home. And then maybe they're looking at their children and saying, my own children will have to be here. (laughs) But Jeremiah says, go ahead and, and make sure they marry good spouses and have lots of grandchildren because you see it may be the grandchildren who get to go home. There is hope and it may not be what you expected your life to turn out like, but Keep that hope alive. Grandchildren carry that hope. I I know a little bit something about this because three years ago I became a grandfather. And there's something amazing, I'll tell you, about that. Somebody once told me that uh, if Abraham had trudged up the side of Mount Moriah with his grandson instead of Isaac, his son, we'd all be in a very different situation, (laughs) you know. But... When you have that hope, you know, I want this world to be a better place for Nora, my granddaughter. I have hopes for her. And and so even though I may feel a little bit out of sorts with what's going on in our world, I still can keep hope alive. I can still keep engaged because I keep that long view. Jeremiah says, keep the long view, folks, and live for what's happening right now. Don't live in the woulda, coulda, shouldas. Don't wallow in your disappointment because of your unmet expectations. You have to reshape them. 
You can have new ones that recognize the good things that God has given you for the here and now. Don't just hate the situation that you're in. Learn to live for the good that God can make out of it. Live in the present. Second vignette, Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. Hope in a new relationship. Hope in exile, hope in a new relationship. This is what he says. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. Remember, this is a people Jeremiah is writing to that had thought they had really blown it. And they had. They'd messed up and had caused brokenness in their relationship with their very creator. And now they had a sense of being cut off in a foreign land, far from the city, far from the temple. No more priesthood, no more sacrifice, no more basis of all the relationship that they knew with God. What a tragic place to feel like you're in. There's a wall of distance between me and the one who made me. But Jeremiah says, guess what, guys? It's not over. Not at all. God is a redeeming God. He wants a new, and he promises there will be a new relationship for you if you want it. Right where you are, you can have it. And there are four amazing things that Jeremiah mentions that will be truth and true about this relationship. First of all, it has to do with their behavior. See, up until now, Israel had been trying to keep the law, maybe out of fear, maybe out of obedience, being forced to the do's and the don'ts of what it is that God's law required. But look at what Jeremiah says. Now I'm going to put my instruction deep within you. It will no longer be just simple rote obedience, maybe out of fear, out of your own effort, but your life will characterize my instruction because it's going to be internalized. And that's what relationship does. You don't do things simply because of fear, but you do them out of love to please the one with whom you are in relationship. And God says that's one of the characteristics. The second characteristic is that there's a belonging that comes. I will be their God and they will be my people. We all need community. We all want to belong but God is not some distant figure far removed from us. But he says, I'm your God. If you enter into this relationship with me, I belong to you and you belong to me. That kind of amazing um, belonging brings about an intimacy that has this equality of intimacy. It's not like this hierarchy where there's the priests, the professional religionists, and then everybody else, you know. But he says, you don't need to do that because everybody will know me. You'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. The lay and the professional, everybody has the same kind of intimacy and so we can belong together to the one who loves us ultimately. 
And why is that? Because of the foundation of this new relationship, this new covenant. Covenant is just a fancy word for relationship. And God says, here's the foundation. It's redemption. It's all about redemption. I'll forgive your sin. And the sin was so well known. Israel was embroiled, enmeshed in that kind of a lifestyle that led to the idolatry and the child sacrifice and the religious prostitution that led to their judgment and their exile. But God says, I'm going to forgive that, but I'm going to even go more. I'm not even going to remember it. We have the capacity to forgive others, but think about not even being able to remember when somebody wrongs you. Only God has that capacity. And he says, I am going to redeem you so thoroughly and utterly that when I look at you, I won't remember any of the wrong things that you've done. I'll only remember the good. What an amazing God. What an amazing relationship. And the amazing thing about this promise in Jeremiah is it's the only place in all of the Hebrew scriptures, the Older Testament, where this new covenant is mentioned. Habrit hachadashah in the Hebrew, only mentioned in Jeremiah 31. And so here's this prophet of brokenness who is given the honor to announce one of the most hope-filled messages in all of the Bible. In fact, the whole latter part, which we call the New Testament, also New Covenant scriptures, it's all based upon this very promise. And you know who actually brought it to pass? (laughs) None other than the Lord Jesus. He announced that this now is available fully and finally, and that is wonderful. You remember this story. Jesus had gone to Jerusalem just before going to the cross. He went into that upper room, and he celebrated what was the Passover, this great historical annual reenactment of God's deliverance of Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And and it's something that was so filled with joy because of what God had done. And yet Jesus in that upper room explained to his disciples and to us that all of that was just a picture of what God wanted to do in redeeming all people, all humanity. And Jesus speaks about this. He, he comes to the very climax of the liturgy of the Passover and he, he raises the bread for the last morsel that is eaten that night and he says, you know what, this represents my body. And then he takes the cup after supper and in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, he says this, this cup, which in Passover is called the cup of redemption, he says, this cup is the new covenant, habrita chadasha, the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And so Jesus was merely speaking in anticipation of what he was about to do, to go to the cross, to shed his blood, to pay the penalty for our sin, our wrongdoing, our disobedience, and to make possible This new relationship, this new covenant, Jesus said, guess what? I am the ultimate Passover lamb. Guess what? I am the mediator of a new and better covenant, a better relationship, and it's found in me. Wow. Now that's a word of hope, and Jeremiah gets to announce that. What an amazing reality for the people of Israel and indeed for all people. But the the third vignette out of Jeremiah's life is perhaps the most profound of all because it comes not out of the book of Jeremiah which tells this whole story but 
it's kind of like the epilogue in another book that he wrote called Lamentations. And this is what he says. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin fresh each morning. What's the context? Well, I think it was Charlton Heston who said, someone once told me, cheer up, things could get worse. So I cheered up and they got worse. <laughs> and that was what was going on with Jeremiah here. Because you see, after he gets out of prison, after he writes this letter, the people who are left in Jerusalem decide, you know what, we don't like what's going on. We're going to rebel again against Babylon. And they ask Jeremiah's advice, and he says, no, no, don't do it. But they do it anyway. And now Nebuchadnezzar comes back, and he doesn't just take people captive. He completely and utterly destroys the city and the temple. That one of the seven wonders of the world, Solomon's temple is just rubble now, and everything's gone. And they leave Jeremiah alone because they know that he had told them not to rebel. And so he's there in the midst of the rubble looking and saying these words. And what ultimately happens to him is that those who are remaining, who hide out and come back, say, now we need to leave. We need to go to Egypt. And what do you think, Jeremiah? He says, no, don't go to Egypt. And they say, well, we're going to go anyway, and we're taking you with us. And against his will, he himself ended his life in exile. And yet these are his words. Amazing. How does he do that? How does in the midst of this exilic brokenness does Jeremiah have hope? I dare, he says, I dare to hope. <laughs> How does he do it? Well, you know, it's all about love. But not just any kind of love. A divine love. A love that demonstrates the loyalty of God, the steadfast love. It doesn't fade. In fact, it's fresh every single day. It gets better and better because it's God's love. And that's what makes the difference. That's how Jeremiah was able in his brokenness to be a prophet of hopefulness. And so how do we do that too? How do we maybe in some small way become heroes of faith and find out of the midst of our challenging lives to be hopeful for the future. Well, there are three words that I'd like to quickly put on the board that really come out of these three vignettes that we've been looking at in Jeremiah. And the first one is, as Jeremiah said to the people in exile, he says to us today, live in the present live in the present. We're all living in a kind of exile, if you think about it, because ultimately our truest home is with God in his presence. But in the meantime, here we are. Here we are. And, and uh, we live in a world that brings all kinds of things into our lives that we weren't asking for. Our exile often feels just like loss. 
a pervasive sense of loss and disappointment at so many different levels. For some of us, it may be we experience the loss of a broken relationship that we, we never thought would break, the disappointment that comes with that, the sense of loneliness. This isn't what I expected, an alienation, and we carry that with us. Or maybe things haven't turned out exactly the way we wanted them to with our job and with our career, and we've kind of hit a dead end, and there's disappointment that we have for ourselves that maybe others have for us as well, and we're stuck in it. And maybe bitterness comes because there's unmet expectations. Or some of us may be sitting here facing the prospect of declining health. Way sooner than we ever anticipated, our mortality is staring us in the face. And we say, wait a minute, I had so many hopes for myself. And now look at me, I'm coming to this. How can I deal with that? There's exile, there's alienation that we face. But this is what God's encouragement to us is. Live for today and don't let regret rob us of the joys that are available to us now. Engage with people around us. Don't disconnect. Engage with our world. Don't give up. Take that long view. No matter how many days we're given, God wants us to live in the present. We have to dispense with the if-onlys of our lives. If only this didn't happen. If only I got the job or married the person or lived in the house, etc. But we need to open our eyes and see. Stop waiting for what might come because guess what? It may not. Or stop wishing that this or that didn't happen because guess what? It did. And so live in the present. Live with new expectations based upon what it is that God has put in front of us. Jesus said, Stop worrying about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble for, of its own. We need to live in the present. Second word for us is live with his presence. You see, there is a relationship to be had with the living God that Jesus made possible through his life and his death and resurrection. And through him, we can know the living God. We can have his grace as part of the foundation of our daily lives. Now, some of us have had this relationship vibrantly in the past, and maybe it's faded. That was my experience. I came to believe and follow Jesus fairly young in life and then had a prodigal experience that led me far, far away and into all kinds of things that, you know... I'm embarrassed to even talk about. And yet, ultimately, God, the faithful, loving, redeeming God, called me back to himself. And I came and I experienced that renewal, a renewed covenant, a renewed relationship with him. And all oh, the joy and the grace and the new purpose in life. And I found myself time and again coming back to that wonderful redeeming God and saying, yeah, but I still remember I, I know what I did. I know who I am. And, and finally, one day, I thought I heard God say, what are you talking about? I don't remember what you're talking about. And we need to hear that from God. He doesn't just forgive us. He doesn't even remember. He sees us in Jesus' goodness and wholeness 
and love. What a relationship. We can be renewed in that today. Or maybe some of us are just here checking things out. We haven't quite made that step to become followers of Jesus. But think about this. In this weekend of freedom, to experience true freedom in that relationship with God, to know that you are fully loved by the one who made you, to know that he longs to belong to you and you to him, completely forgiven, a fresh start. What a wonderful decision we have to embrace true freedom from the one who endowed us with freedom. That's a great way to celebrate independence by being dependent upon the one who gives us his grace. We have to say yes, though. He doesn't force us. Say yes to him today. And then the third word is simply this. Don't just live for the present. Don't live just in his presence, but for the future promises. Oh, there's a presence of God that we have yet to experience. And it makes all the difference in the world. You see, because we really are in exile, we cannot shield ourselves from the brokenness that surrounds us and that invades our lives. But we can live hope-filled lives because God, through his mercies, has promised us a much better tomorrow. He has placed eternity in our hearts. And we need to be able to discern the difference between what's permanent and what's perishable. And we have that. It's a distant echo, maybe a strange and unfulfilled as yet longing. C.S. Lewis put it this way, do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been or would not always be purely aquatic? But notice how we are perpetually surprised at, at time. Wow, how time flees. In heaven's name, why? Unless indeed there is something in us that is not temporal. God has placed eternity in our hearts. And the struggle that we face in the midst of our brokenness ultimately leads us to realize that there's something much greater that ultimately satisfies. We think so often that temporal things will satisfy. Oh, if I could only meet that guy or that girl who's going to be that perfect mate for me. And then guess what? We find it. <laughs> How great is that? It is great. It's good. But, you know, over time, even those things, wonderful things that they are, can fade. That romance, that first time together, yeah, it doesn't last. Oh, but we can have children then, right? Yeah. <laughs> Or the job, I just can't wait till I pass the bar and get my own practice. But then, 10 years later, that's all it is. It's, it's my practice. You know? Everything, even the best of things that are this life, can fade because they're temporal. But there's something that we've been made for 
that surpasses all of the very best things that God has put into this life. And so we can dare to hope, even as Jeremiah did in the midst of his ultimate brokenness, we can dare to hope because the best things that God has for us are found in that wonderful mercy and love. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that his love endures forever. Taste and see that it's fresh and new every morning and it gets better and better and better until finally that final morning where we stand and the morning star rises in our hearts and we're in God's presence, fully satisfied, fully realized in all the potential of all the hope and promise because we are fully loved and we love fully. Wow. What a great hope. It's the hope that secured Jeremiah, and it's the hope that will secure us as well. In a moment, we're going to have our time of giving. The band will come back for a final song. But you know, there is a chorus that many of us at Cornerstone love to sing, and maybe you know it. If you don't, that's okay. Maybe you'll be able to pick it up and sing with. But I'd like us to sing that together this morning. Very simple. From this passage in Lamentations, these words of Jeremiah Sing it together as a declaration of faith and confidence that even though temporal things can sometimes weigh us down, that which is permanent, that which is eternal in our hearts can really satisfy us even in the, even in the present and give us hope for the future. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Great is your faithfulness. They are new every morning. New every morning, great is your faithfulness, O Lord, great is your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for calling us to a future that is bright with promise and hope because we were made for a future that is centered in you and gets better and better with each passing day because of your loyal, steadfast love. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.